what is up guys welcome back to another episode of the fractal exploratorium i am joined by my friend slash audio engineer nit tantillo what's going on everybody so today's episode is going to be about automation and there's going to be a few subsets of that so we'll talk about 3d printing uh that'll be a big topic of discussion that'll happen during this and the other one will be other sources of automation so today in this world you might have noticed that there has been a large rise in automated processes uh you're starting to see self-driving cars on the road you're starting to see teslas that have features are similar to a self-driving car. The ordering screen at mcdonald's now the ordering screen at mcdonald's exactly and you might start to wonder the next thought okay all these things are becoming automated how's there going to be jobs to fulfill the lack of auto, you know lack due to automation because automation is an exponential growth and it is rising in popularity and it is starting to hit the mainstream now and many people are starting to wonder exactly what this is going to mean what kind of ramifications it's going to have throughout the rest of society and I talked about in a previous episode a solution for automation called a resource-based autonomy. Um, if you want to hear more about that, you could check out the third episode talking about resource-based economies. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about the um, symptoms of the problem rather than the solutions for the problem. So I usually like to start things with the solution. Uh, I like to start on a positive note. And then kind of bring you down a little bit, but end on a positive note after that. It's like the, uh, well, I won't cuss here, but it's like the turd sandwich, Deej. It is. <laughs> it is very much like that. But basically, when I go over concepts, I, I don't like to be like every other documentary where they start off with the doom and gloom. I like to start off with solutions. And I'm coming from an angle where... The reason I talked about the problems is because I think there is solutions that could be implemented. So there's no other reason for me to really discuss the doom and gloom of something unless I believe that we have a solution for it. Well, you're sort of reverse engineering it to, you know, kind of talking about the end game and, and some ideas that are, are surrounding the solutions to kind of break it down and get to the problem at the end. Yeah, exactly. Or Smart. get get to how it's a fractal pattern at the end. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> the name fractal's in there, so every episode we do at least have to come to the conclusion that the topic we're talking about ties into fractal and fractal architecture, which is my new style of architecture I just came up with. So you might be wondering what's going to happen with the workforce. Well, a lot of people like to claim that it's similar to the previous industrial revolutions. So the previous industrial revolutions, a lot of people believe that there was nothing else to be invented. Uh, for a while, they thought there was, they, there was going to be no need for a patent office because everything was invented. And then, of course, that was nowhere near true because we have a ton more inventions now. And it wasn't true that due to machinery and, um, and re reproduction of products, that was a new concept during the Industrial Revolution. Before, everything had to be pretty much handmade and was very different products. Each time you would get a different product because it all had to be handmade. But with machinery, everything became uniform in the way that it was constructed. And so this allowed for a surplus of, of 
things to own. And because there was never a surplus before, there was always demand for something. There was never more supply than there was demand for the most part. And that's one of the reasons why capitalism used to work so well. It was a beautiful system because it was a system based upon the work that you put into the system is increment to the profit that comes out of the system. It is not like that now. It's completely different. You have people on Wall Street who are essentially dealing with imaginary money and producing no product and getting tons in return. So it, it the inequality there is definitely evident. It's, it's, it's pretty obvious to anyone who is paying attention to exactly how our economy works. So what will automation do? To this it, it was believed like i was saying during the industrial revolution that there was going to change the labor force and there wasn't going to be jobs anymore because all the machines were going to take over and as we know that didn't happen and right now this is being considered the fourth industrial revolution that's called the automation revolution right now yes and they're even talking about the ceo from my work from the massive corporation of janet fleming came down to this office to give a town hall meeting that we all had and he heavily talked about the fourth industrial revolution the automated revolution so that's kind of an example how businesses and everyone kind of just thinks well this is going to be just another industrial revolution there to be jobs in the end of it the difference i'm going to say is that we're not just creating machines that need to be operated by someone we're creating a being better than us yeah, I was going to say, it seems like with the machinery and, and, and whatnot, you still had to have an operator and somebody knowledgeable enough to run everything. But I think with now, with automation, we're seeing things actually be able to control themselves, you know, as a separate entity alone, which wasn't the case with machinery. It wasn't the case. And also the machinery wasn't better at certain human tasks. Now, these, automa- these automated machines are becoming a task of new advanced AI. AI that's better than us. Uh, there's an AI that's now capable of beating humans in jeopardy. So it started with Deep Blue uh, in 19, I think it was 1989 was the year. Uh, I, I'll have to check that, but it's around that time is when Deep Blue came out, which was the computer system that was able to beat Gary Kasparov, which was the best chess player. Uh, still considered history's best chess player of all yeah, time. I've actually heard of that, I think. Yeah, he's this Russian guy. Gary Kasparov is his name. Uh, you might have been hearing about him recently because recently he's not real political. Uh, I, I think he's a U.S. citizen. That's why he's in the U.S. politics because he, he doesn't live in Russia. But I, I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't played chess in a while, so I don't know. We're going to need a fact check. I brush on up on my ch- chess history. Either way, what I do know is that Deep Blue, the computer program made by IBM, was able to flat out beat him every single time. Now, it wasn't the first time he competed against it. It didn't. But after a while, it did. And the reason it can beat a human no matter what, even the little chess games on your phone, if you really cranked up the difficulty, you'll never win because they could calculate every possible outcome of every possibility. You can't. It can do that. So no matter you move your pawn one space, it can calculate every possible outcome of every possible move you could possibly make. And so therefore it can counteract every move you can make. Yeah, exactly. Because it can see the end product. The second you make a move, it automatically can see every possible outcome of every possibility. 
and it, that's unbeatable. You can't you can't win against that. How are you gonna win? <laughs> it didn't. It knows every combination. So it's not necessarily that it has logic per se. It's just that its mathematical formula is so in depth that. It, exactly, but remember, this is back before even like the internet. IBM's like first simple computers. I'm telling you now. Now even your little Apple Watch could probably beat you in chess, <laughs> easily, being beat you in chess. But my my point is is that it's grown exponentially to now they have a computer program that is able to beat humans in Jeopardy every single time by a long shot. So. These things are not slowing down. There's been no sign of the intelligence of these things slowing. There's already uh, an AI in Japan that was a, that was taught to write stories and novels. Uh, there's been ones that have been creating art. And there was also something I saw recently that was absolutely crazy. And that was AI was able to recreate faces, make realistic faces of people that never actually existed. Every face looks like a real person. You can look it up. What do you mean recreate faces? As in drawing or, you know, an actual model or... Meaning it created a picture, a photorealistic picture of someone that's just like you or me, looks just like any of us, and assemble these pictures. And I thought they were real until I read the article because they looked like real people. And none of those people actually existed. The AI randomly generated them. So using known features and facial recognition, it was able to create false pictures. And this is also something of a concern that's happening in the future, too, is that uh, AI is starting to be able to mimic faces. So I could put you in like a recording room, right, that looks like the White House, and project on like Obama or Trump's face, any president's face, and have you saying anything you want to say? It harkens a little bit back to a uh, new audio technology that's come out. Uh, Adobe's making a... They've in- integrated a piece of their app, uh, Adobe Edition, to audio program, where as long as they have a sample about 5 to 10 seconds long of anybody speaking, they're able to then have you type out you know, paragraphs of words, and it's able to recreate that exact voice to to say that whatever you want it to say and it's incredibly accurate that's the exact technology i'm talking about but paired with ai so ai is automatically able to create whoever you want right so you don't even have to like type it out yeah (laughs) so you could just you could just talk and it'll change the voice on the fly and it'll change your face and your even like your mannerisms and stuff so that's some of, um, if you ever want the truth someday, especially in polarized times like now where everyone thinks every news that's out there doesn't fit their agenda is fake news. I, I mean, every, every side of this, I, I'm not going to say any sides, but pretty much every side has claimed that the opposition is fake news in some sense. And a lot of it actually is, because a lot of it's corporate media news, which is a lot of propaganda that's just made up. But the problem is, in this era, even if you have a video recording of someone, you could go, well, that might not even be real. (laughs) So, I mean, it's hard to get actual evidence. So that's just another way that AI is changing things and advancing. Yeah, I think we're going to definitely get to a point where 
you have to question what's real and what's not um, almost every day. You do. And uh, this is this is a little side tangent, but getting to my point is that AI is going to be smarter and better than us. And these automated machines are going to be better at our jobs than us. So what is to become of us after that? You know, a lot of people have seen movies like iRobot or Terminator, and you automatically think that the obvious answer is that we're going to have a robot apocalypse, a robopalypse or whatever they, <laughs> whatever they missed words. I, I don't know. I, I've heard that before. Yeah. But uh, the, my point is, is that it's going to get to that point where it does replace us in the workforce. Cause why would you hire an employee worse than the one you have? And the one you have doesn't need lunch breaks, doesn't need to go home, never takes sick leave, never does any of that. It doesn't really need a consistent stream of income either. No, you don't, you don't need to pay it. No. And, and then, then there's also a problem with that. If a robots have all the jobs and they're getting all the money, then what are they, are they going to spend it? No, because they're not getting, they're not getting paid. So you just took a whole, the whole system is disrupted if people can't spend money. That's why ideals like trickle-down economics are absolutely absurd because that's just not how the economy works. The better the economy is is the, when a middle class has strong spending power. And if the middle class doesn't have strong spending power, which is what a lot of these jobs will be affected by, uh, they'll start off with blue-collar jobs will be the first to go, and in the way later future, white-collar jobs will start going too. But there is some good news to this is that if we stop at a certain point, which I don't know if we will, but I think that we need to start having policy and politicians that talk about where automation is going and if we should regulate it. I think we should regulate it to about the intelligence of like a five-year-old, which is what I think the cutoff should be for it. Just enough to start asking pestering questions, but not enough to realize what to do with the answers to those questions. Well, can a five-year-old take a McDonald's order? I don't know. How smart are five-year-olds? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know either, but I know that I definitely went to McDonald's today and ordered on a an automated screen. So, But I'm you ordered kind of, that. It, did, it was an AI. So you're saying that in this situation, I'd walk in and it would just know what I want? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't know what you want, but it, you're not working there. Right. So I mean, my point is, is that you essentially took your own order. So your 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 involvement, you're you're working there a little more than you would have been before. That's actually extraordinarily true. Yeah. So you just went and did some of the cashier work. How do you feel? Terrible. Now you just worked for McDonald's. Yeah. You worked for your own <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> that's a really good point. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, that, well, that's what self-checkout is. That's why I think I, I forget what comedian was. He was joking about how, like, yeah, the self-checkout isn't cool. You just made me become the cash, cashier. Like, now I'm the cashier and backer. That's amazing. He's like, I just got two jobs for having to go to the grocery store. <laughs> you know, I, I get that point. I, I do like the self-checkout, though, for some reason. I don't know. I mean, it, I feel like it's worked to interact with people sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say, it's because as Americans now, we're all so detached and we don't want to talk to people or be well, bothered. I, I, I can walk up um, with phone in one hand, scrolling on Facebook while scanning my food. You know, and not true, be bothered. Like a true American. 
But either way, you, the point is is that you'll start seeing that even more. And you'll get to the point where McDonald's doesn't have any staff inside. There's complete automated system that you go and punch your order in and then it'll fill I mean, you've already seen the drink fillers they have automatic drink fillers that when you're pulling up those drinks are already having ice and filled up with your order i don't know if you ever looked they have that in taco bell they have that in mcdonald's they have that in a lot of these fast food places and all the fast food workers out there you know what i'm talking about you probably know the more technical term for it i don't but I roll up and I already see my drink being poured by it without anyone doing anything. It grabs its own cup, drags the cup over in a little conveyor belt type thing that holds the cup and it drags it over the the ice and then whatever drink you want. So that's already a job that's been automated. It hasn't automated the full job, but at some point there won't be any employees inside. There'll be like one guy. Uh, like the Lego factory is a place where one guy pretty much operates the whole damn thing. So it, it's it's coming, it's happening, and they say within the next 30 years, close to 30% of the jobs will be gone, and that's what I consider the tipping point of a capitalist monetary market economy will have a complete and utter failure at that point. So... The, the, the problem is real. The problem of, of what's going to happen to all our jobs is real. And a lot of people say, well, this will create more jobs because someone will have to maintain the robots. Yeah, the robots can maintain the other robots. <laughs> they already can do that. I, I mean, they, they can, they can, robots can build other robots easily. So that leads me into my next subject, and that's 3D printing. I happen to personally own two separate 3D printers. Uh, there's two types of printers in in additive. So these are all these are all additive printers. So they add a layer of filament layer by layer, and that's how they construct an object. So uh, just to set that straight, there's two main types that are available to the public right now as far as additive printers go, and that's what's called a Cartesian printer. So that's a printer where the extruder head, uh, which is a nozzle, the extruder head's the hot part that melts this plastic that is fed through it. And the extruder on a Cartesian printer is on rails. So it runs across these little like tracks, like a train. And that's the way it's able to move across all its axes. So it's able to move across a Z, X, and Y axis in 3D space. And it uses an algorithm to decide where the point your nozzle is that's extruding this type of material. And that algorithm is fed by what's called a G code. And a G code is basically the printer algorithm language that it understands. And all you have to do is find something online. There's many free prints that there is that people have created on 3d programs that you could just download the file feed it in through your printer via G-code, and it'll understand where to lay those layers in 3D, in 3D space. So that's the old one I have. It's called a Cartesian printer. Uh, the new one I just got is called a Delta printer. So the difference is, is that the extruder doesn't run across these rails. It runs across these three arms that suspend it in 3D space. And so it only uses three motors to move across um, four axes or three axes depending on what, what type you have. 
So that's the one I just got, and they're a little bit quicker because they have less weight where the nozzle is that melts the filament. So those are the two main types that are available to public. Uh, they both comes with comes with their uh, pros and cons to them. Some have different advantages. Some have different disadvantages. Either way, they're both pretty excellent printers. And right now, the thing that I have been printing out recently is a RC tank. So these printers have gotten to the point where I can go to work and set a part to print all day. And I come home and that part's done and I can build it and put it together into an actual physical usable item. So they've gotten to the point of where it's not just models just printing anymore or just a piece of plastic that sits up there. It's actual objects used around the house. It's actual RC tank, which is just a lead up to what I'm going to actually be printing. And I'm going to be printing a drone quadcopter that is able to do inspections for what I do at work. So at my work, I'm a structural technician and we do structural engineering. And sometimes the things we engineer, we need to do inspections for these drones are able to do those inspections. And I'm able to, instead of buy a couple thousand dollar drone somewhere for our company, I'm able to come home draw it on my 3d programs and produce us a custom drone for extremely cheap to be able to take to work and use i feel like that's definitely a, a big deal when it comes to company cost and 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 efficiency of companies and i'd imagine you're going to see this be implemented not just in you know a job like yours like structural you know engineering or whatnot but I, I think this will eventually come to more a more general public oh definitely uh it's 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 getting past that point uh i work is very my work is very interested in using this and right now it's not going to replace any inspectors but it will because i was i was joking about having the title of they're having me get my drone certificate and <laughs> have the title of um drone pilot and i joked to my manager i was like these things do so much of their own tasks that i would technically just be a battery changer <laughs> my title would be drone battery changer now would you want to be a drone pilot over what you do now uh no that's and, what i thought and yes <laughs> no and yes if, uh, if it could be a part of what you do now I would like it to be a part of it. I don't want it to be the main aspect of what I do because uh, what I do is actually draw up these 3D buildings and make them in 3D space. So that's a lot of fun. These, I, Being a drone pilot would be fun if I could treat it like my race drone and go flying through <laughs> things in a fun manner. Right. But these drones that I use for inspections, their entire path and what they do is completely automated. You, you draw on a tablet the area you want to scan. So it's like you're selecting something on Google Earth, essentially. And you bots across that area, say, I want this area photographed. And then it takes off, does it, and lands all by itself. And if it runs out of batteries in between, it remembers where it was, comes back. You change the battery, it goes back out. <laughs> That's Hence, insane. professional battery changer. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know that drones could do that, honestly. Yeah, they, they easily can do that. And we've seen it at my company. We've had people come in 
and give us examples of how these drones work and what they can do. And it is astonishing what they're able to scan. The accuracy that they have, they don't even use any sort of scanners except for a regular camera. And they're able to use camera and different camera angles and tons of pictures put together to create a 3D geometry. It's something that's completely out of this world. And I just discovered recently that you could just take any sort of, um, if you have a nice uh, Canon camera or even an iPhone camera, you can go around an object taking as many pictures as you can each little increment. So let's say you start with like a, uh, any sort of objects you could think of like a chair or something you start like a 90 degree angle and you work yourself like little angles across it mm-hmm. taking pictures the whole way you can compile all those pictures in an autocad program and that program will spit out a 3d geometry automatically from just your camera pictures now what's a 3d geometry 3d I, object I, I okay i just wasn't sure what that was so like uh, again a chair is in 3d space you go around it with your camera you will pull this into a program and it'll automatically make that geometry in 3d space and then you can mm. print that item and essentially duplicate an item very close to how it looked just by taking pictures around it got it and basically what you're doing is you're acting like a 3d scanner that's what 3d scanners do is they spin around and they they take tons of pictures on a bunch of degrees around the object so you could essentially do that same thing if you just put something in a center spot where you can easily kind of decide how much increments may just take a step right or left each time take another row of shots up and down and keep going you don't have to be a professional photographer if you just take a ton of pictures of this object at every angle then you can scan it into a 3d object and be able to reproduce it it's pretty unreal where uh, the general public has gotten in terms of technology. I mean, what we're able to access versus like, you know, you don't, you wouldn't think that you, we had, a, you wouldn't think that we have access to this kind of stuff and are able to pull this off without some kind of insane, you know, method. And that's, this is, this is the point. Another point I'm getting to here. Uh, telling you about the printers i have is that i'm not exactly super rich it's not like you need to be super wealthy or rich to have one of these things yeah we're definitely not rich no we're not and these things are affordable to the general public and mine might be a tinkerer type one that you got to build and put together but there's ones that are the whole package for about the same price that are called plug and plays i call them i mean yours is really big though I mean, this thing is an actual piece of hardware. This is not a joke. Your other one is not a joke either, but it's definitely more of a hobbyist type thing, I feel like. Well, this one that you have now is kind of all out. This one's not... The other one's not four feet tall. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, this one's a, a complete four feet tall, so it's quite the massive printer. So, And it really wasn't that much more than the other one, and the quality is that much better. And this is just two years later. Two years later... I got a printer for almost the same price that's like 10 times as good. Uh, these things are advancing extremely fast. Exponentially. Yes, they're exponential growth. And the thing that's coming up next is that these printers will be able to someday be a localized means of manufacturing in your own house. How big are these? How big do these get? I mean, I've heard stories about houses being 3D printed. Yes. 
So that was something I was going to talk about. And, and this is this is getting into the fractal aspect of the fractal exploratorium. We're actually now starting to dip into it. So uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a set. Sorry, I jumped ahead too fast. You got me <laughs> no, thinking now. No, it's all good because I got to come, come around to that topic. I got to remember. Uh, so these machines are going to be a commonplace in everyone's house in the future. And in a lot of my architectural designs for houses... I started including what I call a production room. A production room is going to have an advanced 3D printer that takes up most of it. So think about your garage and turn your garage into a giant 3D printer that's able to produce all of your goods, big and small, no matter what it is, it'll be able to produce it. And the reason being is because these are getting advanced enough where they can print with tons of different materials at the same time. For the example I always give is that soon these things will be able to print entire iPhones and tablets on their own. Right now, they're just pretty much restricted to one type of filament at a time. So ours use PLA, which is a plant-based material uh, based out of sugarcane. And that's what we print with right now. And the stuff's pretty durable. It lasts and it can print pretty much any shape and it's really easy to print with. But... There's also carbon infused, so carbon fiber is one I just tried that is a light and strong material that is able to use in things like my tank or airplane, for example, the RC plane and tank that I've been printing. And other filaments include flexible filament. I haven't tried yet, but that is something that my printer can now handle, and it can handle wood infused and metal infused. Also, a conductive one too that's able to print circuit boards so the ones that i have that are just about thousand dollars a piece are starting to be able to print with multiple different filaments and materials it's pretty unreal so it's getting to the point where these things will be able to print out of all those materials at once and it'll be able to layer on the exact material so like you'll be printing with raw copper to print the circuitry then the silicon board will be printed on top of it It'll be able to print out of all the materials and, like I said, print you out like a full laptop or a tablet or computer. They'll get to the point where they can print a full one of those complex items. All for the price of the filament. All for the price of the filament. And so this is the reason why I, in the last episode, talked about resource-based economy. Because then, if all the goods aren't made by anyone, but they're made in your house, and you just go online and go, huh, I kind of want a new toaster... And you just pull up a toaster you like, and your production room automatically spits that out, and then you go pick it up. You don't even have to go to the store. Now, wouldn't the prices of filament just go skyrocketed if people were able to make all these, you know, items at home? Uh, I would say yes and no. And in our current system, yes. And the system I'm calling for, no. That wouldn't be the case because... Yeah, I was going to say, in the resource-based economy that you keep bringing up, it sounds like that wouldn't be a part of it. Well, the form of exchange is in resources, and everyone gets an allotted amount of resources. And I know all of a sudden people go, oh, I get an allotted amount, like an allowance. That sounds like... Isn't that com- communism? That sounds like communism, yeah, but this isn't communism because communism, a workforce needs to be able to produce the products. And that workforce is expected to, no matter how hard they work, get the same amount as the other guy who's working maybe way harder, which is why it's inevitably a flawed system and it already failed. And I wouldn't, I would never call for a system that already failed. 
I want a new system that we haven't tried yet. A system that is completely new to the world. And the reason a lot of them out sound scary to people because you go, what if I want more stuff? What what if I want to get more shit? Like, well, one of the things about a resource-based economy is if you decide to put more into the system and work, you get extra than the living base amount. So increment to how much you do, how much you produce, is the increment to how much you'll get out of the system. That's what capitalism used to be when it first started. It's not like that anymore. Right now, you could be a uh, guy on a yacht sipping martinis not doing any of the work, not producing anything, while your company does all the work for you. Right. So that's already a terrible system. There's already people not doing any work, getting all the money. That's true. So, I mean, what's the, what would be the problem with getting a lot of them out? And the difference here, and here's, here's the big one, is that the allotted amount of resources and the ability to produce and recycle those resources within your housing unit and, or family unit or personal unit, here, here's, here's the fact about that. You'll have more possible material goods. So not material goods in the sense of having them right now in the physical world, but you have the possibility and access to those any material good you want within the confines of your resource allowment. Hmm. So you're saying, depending on how much I've got allotted to me, I'm able to make whatever I want so long as it fits within that limit. Yes, it, as long as it fits in that. But here's the thing, is that the possibility of how many products you can have is actually way greater than you could ever hope to be. You, Everyone would actually live technically like, like a billionaire. Because, for example, if you're a billionaire and you have three yachts, you can't use them all at once. How could you use all the yachts at once? Right. So three of them, two of them have to sit in the harbor. And that's if you're yachting 24-7 instead of doing something else. Mm-hmm. So half the time, those resources aren't even being used. They're just sitting there. Right. So you have a mass amount of resources that you can't use at the same time. Like if you have a mansion and you have like every type of good possible, well, you can't play with all those things at the same time. No. You can't use them all. You can only use certain things. Something sit in the closet and storage forever. So you're saying just make what you need at the time. Yeah, make what you need at the time. And like, so, so here's an example I always put. Like, say you're real into telescoping. You want to go out there and look at the stars and stuff. Well, you got to go buy an expensive telescope and that's going to cost you a decent amount. And after you're done kind of doing that phase, you moved on to something else you want to do. What's that telescope going to do? Sit there. It's just going to sit there and collect dust Mm -hmm. on the lenses and everything. And then you're just going to want to go sell it on Craigslist or eBay or or something like that because you're no longer into it or have someone of your friends buy it. So you're not going to want that. You moved on to something else. Well, So rather than buying something with money and then selling it to get that money back, you're buying it with, you know, aka filament or... It doesn't have to be filament. You're buying it with resources and then you're selling it to get yeah. more resources. Well, I mean, you don't have to sell it. What you can do is you can break down that matter to produce something from the next thing. You get what I mean is that you have an allotted amount of actual raw material resources and 
not all that will be used. So it's like it's like having a savings and checkings account. Mm. It's like only touching your checkings and moving things around. And when you need right. a little extra, you take out of the savings. Right. When you have a little extra, you put more into the savings instead of the checking. Mm. So basically, you'll be able to have resources on reserve and resources that are actually deployed into material goods that you're using at the current time. So what I'm saying is that the possible amount of resources that you can be able to use is unlimited opposed to I can only afford the telescope right now. I either have to sell oh. it or I make more money. But this telescope could be reused because I'm not using it right now to be put into the material goods that I'm using uh, my interest right now. I think I'm starting to get it more than I have in the past when you, you kind of have talked about it. When you put it that way, it makes a lot more sense. I guess it's, it's kind of like the idea that if I buy a microphone and I need two and I ran out of money from buying the first one, now I have no way to get the second one. But if I have, you know, some other piece of audio gear that I've outgrown that's just been sitting in my closet for two years, I would be able to actually take that and recycle it and get my second microphone that I need now. Yes. Like your two channel interface, do you need that anymore? No. <laughs> Are you ever going to use that? Probably not. So it's either you sell that, but see, that interface actually has enough items in it to be able to rearrange into a new object like a new microphone and the other point is that the old microphones you don't need that you no longer use can be recycled the material to make the new edition microphone that was maybe designed that might oh that's a good point so you could even if there's a new model of something and you have the old model you could just just as easily recycle the old model and upgrade to the new model with really no difference exactly and because you have an allotted amount of resources and you you take from other stuff that you're no longer using it actually makes it unlimited what you can get so it's like all of a sudden you're interested in this microphone let's say you can't decide what microphone you want have you ever had that problem yes you're like i have 300 bots i can you spend it on this one or I can spend it on this and get this yes well that will no longer be a problem because you can just go print out that microphone. Oh, I don't like it. Recycle the material. Make the new one, the other one that you wanted. That makes sense. So it's like you had enough money to buy both. It's as if you had enough money to buy both microphones. But you have the option of both microphones readily available because the money that you have isn't going to be money at all, but an allotted amount of resources that you can recycle. You can't recycle your money. That's like uh, you, you being able to print money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is very illegal. Essentially, now I'm not saying it's unlimited. You have you know give or take. It's a give or take system. You have to right. Take I mean, away. at some point you're going to run out of things in your house to recycle. Yeah, but if you have that many things, I'm saying the amount of resources you should be allotted will be more than like. There's obviously something you're not freaking using then. Yeah. Like uh, you're telling me in your day you're going to use all those things? Like <laughs> no way. Are you serious? Could this work with clothes? Clothes. Yeah, of course it could work with clothes. I mean, I have so many clothes that I don't use. Yeah. And maybe in like the winter, I never use my short sleeve t-shirts and my tank tops, but I want, you know, a new pair of jeans or some new shoes for the winter. Yeah. But in the summer, I don't want all my long sleeve yeah, stuff. Yeah, it'll eliminate excess. You're starting to sell this to me a little bit better now. Well, yeah, and this is what the modern technology is going to allow you to do. For my, for example, my printer even, with this filament, has a machine that breaks down and melts raw filament so let's say i'm tired of this tank and i want that filament for a plane that could literally melt all that filament down no way and create it into a new spool i don't believe that yes that that technology literally exists right now 
in, I, the, in this I, room? Not in this room. I don't. I I haven't bought it. Uh, money. Okay, that's what, <laughs> no. That's what I that I was getting. I just thought you meant you had it right here. No, but that's I'm going unreal. to get it at some point. I'm going to get it so all my raw excess filament or failed prints can be recycled and put into a new object. So again, no excess. No excess. No need for excess. And that's the thing that we have right now is a lot of large problem is we have tons of excess, and that's the only thing keeping us all employed. Because a while ago. Back before the 50s, people only bought what was necessary. After the 50s, they started having to sell, well, you got to get the bigger car, because if you don't have the bigger car, then your neighbor's better than you. You suck if you don't have the new edition car. And that's where the phrase keeping up with the Joneses came from, which it it, it came during the 50s when everyone had to outdo, oh, I got a 52-inch screen TV. They probably didn't even have TVs that big then, like 20-inch (laughs) I have a 20 inch TV, and then all of a sudden they got the color TV. Oh, we've got to get rid of our TV. We'll get right. the color TV, even though because we're behind uh, now. Even though our TV still works. Right. And that's that's called planned obsolescence, which is when you d- decide for something, you either become obsolete through the new edition, like the new edition iPhone. Don't bring up planned obsolescence to Apple, they'll pretty much murder you they love planned obsolescence that's I their know. favorite pla- pastime it's unbelievable that's for the new uh, the new your iphone to fail as soon as the new one comes out i know every two years actually more like every year and a half right before the announcements are made my phone starts freezing up and doesn't work um there's always something wrong with my iphone when it gets to the time that a new one's coming out and i noticed it for so long and it wasn't until I looked it up last year on the internet that I realized this is a real thing. And, and there's a reason for it. It's because every piece of hardware that's inside of your iPhone, an engineer has tested it for hours until it failed. And they test it over and over again until they can mark the average area of when it failed. So an example of this is when I brought in my uh, computer, my Apple computer, the warranty was for two years to replace whatever. The warranty was up a week it, it failed a week later from its warranty. That's how scary it is. They have it down to, you know, days. They literally know when your object is about to fail. And the reason is because they go, an average person is going to be this many boot-ups of their computer, this many non-boot-ups. They'll run one of the computers through them and determine exactly when it fails every time. And it was after that I learned about how actually good they are at doing it. They're phenomenally good at it. And I learned that this was an engineering position through my pursuit of uh, engineering and architecture throughout my academic to, to career. To figure out planned obsolescence? Well, not to figure out, but to figure out how like that's actually a job. In my engineering class in high school, we were doing a, uh, we were doing a, a, a section lessons about tensile strength, which is the, fail, you know, the strength of an object if you pull on it. Right. That's the tensile strength. So what we were doing is we were marking down the tensile strength and the average of when this object would break. So how many twists and turns you could do from like metal fatigue or something until the object breaks. And our engineering teacher was talking about, he's like, yes, this is a professional engineering career is in planned obsolescence. Knowing when something will break is a professional engineering position. Uh, when you, you mentioned like metal fatigue or something, are you kind of talking about like if I were to take a paper clip and move it back and forth? Until it breaks off? Yes. I mean, is that just a very simple version of what you're saying? It's as if you took a machine, had it bend it back and forth the same amount of degrees each time, and ran thousands of those paper clips through until you're like, okay, this is when it will break. After this many bends. And then before you know it, 
you'll be able to tell how many bends until that thing breaks every Essent- single time without fail yeah essentially is what they do with these larger uh, more complex items so that's why it takes an engineering degree <laughs> seems like such a ripoff to me not not to me i not i'm not saying to me as in to my mind i'm saying i feel like i'm getting personally ripped off by companies um, and taken advantage of now if we're talking about a world where we have you know these production rooms like you're mentioning can we i mean will planned obsolescence still exist in these these you know versions of prints or are we able to kind of since we have control to some degree over what we're doing we'll be able to eliminate that. so it won't be planned obsolescence it'll just be obsolescence right so it won't be obsolescence that someone planned on and the reason is you can blame the companies if you want, but they're actually only victims of a system that we all subscribe to. It's a system demands people to buy things. If you don't buy things, there's no jobs. So if your iPhone lasted you for 10 years, then you wouldn't be buying a bunch of iPhones. Thus, you wouldn't be spending any money and no demand for the iPhone. Thus, no employees would get paid. Thus, no employees would get paid. So, it's intrinsic in the system. It's necessary. If things don't break and go bad, then we'll just own them forever. Like, well, didn't you also say that a healthy economy is when the middle class is spending money? Yeah. And if things last for 10 years, won't I stop spending money? You'll stop spending money. And that, For example, I had a refrigerator that sat in my house ever since I was born. So, this refrigerator has been going for like 30 years. That means 30 yeah, years... Yeah, that white we, one? Yeah, that means for 30 yeah. years, we have not bought a refrigerator. Can you imagine if everyone got a refrigerator during that time and for 30 years there's no refrigerator? <laughs> I, I guess that company really messed up by being too good. <laughs> uh, GE. I believe it was GE. That, that was back then. That was an older fridge. Things used to last. But so now, now were company- people not thinking about this back in the day? I mean, were they not trying to take advantage of the public in the same way they are now? Not before the 50s as much. Before then, people mainly got exactly what they needed. But... It got to a point where manufacturing was so efficient that everyone got what they needed really quick. And since there was a huge middle class, everyone pretty much afforded exactly what they needed. And so the economy started to slow. And so companies and economists, they they learned that like you have to have people spending money on stuff. And that's why we're such a consumerist culture. Because if you have stuff that lasts not that long if you don't need to buy that much stuff then you're not spending a bunch of money now people want you to buy every pointless thing everything is excess everything is about getting pointless stuff that's why we have a culture that's perpetuated the garnishing of wealth being the ultimate good uh the, the more wealth you obtain the more you buy the the better you are the more you are contributing to society because it's literally needed intrinsically within our system our social economic system which we have implored Oh, man. I I will say that going into this episode, I was a little bit on edge about the whole speak, but I feel as if you've kind of definitely laid this out better for me now. And after speaking to you more in depth about it, I think I understand why this could work. And I think just like you said, people are scared at the very beginning of, you know, they think to communism immediately and and with any change, people are always going to be scared, you know? I mean, people are going to, you know, be hesitant to take any leap. But in order to create greatness and, and you know, uh, maintain greatness, we need to make those necessary changes. So, 
Well, we, we do out of necessity, because if we don't, then I'm scared of what society we will have if we don't adapt a new system. If we try to keep this system, it was not, not going to go as we th- thought. Like, it, it's kind of the whole, we do what we're comfortable with, scared to go outside because this has worked. And we don't want to admit that this isn't going to work anymore. We're just very complacent. Yeah, so a lot of people are holding on to it. Well, you know, I got my job. It's good. It pays me money. I don't really want to think about that stuff because it just feels far off. Oh, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. It'll happen to my kids or my grandkids. Well, Which is exactly what I said But then to you. why are you going to go have grandkids? Like, do you want them to worry about it? Like, birth them into a world that might be a dystopia? Like, that, that's, an act- that's a great point. I mean, I mentioned to you that I won't have to deal with it. My kids will. And I guess that's definitely a selfish thing. And then you made a good point that, no, I will probably have to deal with it in my lifetime. We so. probably will because we're looking at the lifetime we've been in. We've gone from no internet to internet on your watch. <laughs> I mean, quite literally on my wrist right now. Yeah, internet on your wrist, internet on the ground. You just dropped your phone. Uh, okay, so internet on the ground. <laughs> internet on the table, internet on my printer. Like, it, literally, it's everywhere now. Well, that's a fun fact. I can have internet on the ground. Yeah, you can have internet on the ground. But either way, there's internet waves, like, all over the damn place at all times. And it's everywhere. Think about that. Unlimited access to all information and all Earth's archives in one little device. It's amazing all the things that are happening that we can't see and all the waves and all the pressure variations and all the... Everything. I mean, audio is just pressure variations it's crazy. in the atmosphere. I mean, you can't see it, but if you were to, you know. But what's even more insane is what I just said. We have access to all of Earth's archives, and instead we opt to freaking take uh, pictures of ourselves doing pointless things. <laughs> That's what we use the technology for. Let me tell you, ever since I deleted Snapchat eight months ago, my life has changed for the incredible better. I mean, being in a world where everybody's so caught up with what everybody's doing every second and worried about what you might be missing out on as some say FOMO fear of missing out. It's, it's amazing to detach yourself from all that pettiness and to just focus on you and the here and the now. I found that when I, well, one, it makes my time with my friends much more enjoyable because I'm not seeing them every second. I don't know what they're doing every second of the day. And two, it just makes it more genuine. I, I get to live my life rather than, you know, um, broadcast it. And I know that's a little bit off of what you're saying, but in the same regard, you know, we spend this internet time, the capabilities of the internet taking selfies of ourselves, like you said. And uh, I've just kind of been opened up to the world very simply what can happen if you stop doing that. And that's not even touching what could happen if you started utilizing it in the right way yeah exactly utilizing it in the right way is exactly what i'm talking about with the phone internet having access to all of earth's archives at your whim and that's kind of how i like to use it and i think a lot of people who do snapchat all on social media should take a step back and think about how much time this is actually taking out of their day oh my gosh it's a huge time suck i mean it's unbelievable when you look at the general society and it's just become a normal now. I mean, I've looked at my phone twice during this conversation for something unrelated, um, not social media, not any BS. It was something, you know, uh, that I actually needed information for. And that's rare that I'll pull out my convert, my phone in a conversation anymore. I mean, I don't do that anymore. And it's amazing if you, once you start detaching yourself, like I said, when you're with people, they're so disrespectful. I mean, we're, we're attached to this 
this world of constant connection and and you can't even have a conversation without somebody pulling their phone out and and ignoring you and oh i i get it drives me crazy it's a huge pet peeve i'll be explaining a crazy topic or wanting to talk about something and someone just pulls out their phone it's like oh it's like all right well he's gone forever so so you were never listening or you decided to stop listening either way like it's disrespectful what's going on on there I, i never whip my phone out when i'm hanging with people no, you don't. And I, I think that that says something about your character. I understand you because you have a business now. Yeah. So you're going to be hit exactly up by what clients. I was looking at. <laughs> you need to look at emails. You need to figure out stuff. That's your income. So, But you should still, as a business person, be able to separate that from reality and be here in the present, you know? Yeah. No, no exactly. Because you should, you know, there's a time and a place for that. Absolutely. But. Uh, podcast, obviously, is a good time and place. <laughs> no, no, I don't, I don't blame it. Either way. Uh, my 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 point being is that you'll have production rooms. Now, do you have a fun fact for us, Deej? I do have a fun fact. So, this well, I think is the second fun fact. It is, and I think we have this. some pretty cool sound effects, if I recall correctly. Yeah, insert sound effects here. So, today's fun fact is going to be about one of my favorite characters in history. Napoleon Bonaparte. So, what I want to discuss is how Napoleon has been made out to be this guy who is a short, evil dictator that tried to conquer most of Europe just like Hitler. And I'm here to debunk every single one of those myths today. So, you're saying that Napoleon is misunderstood, or at least the story of Napoleon is misunderstood. I'm saying that because of British propaganda and because history is written by the winners that he has been made out to be this bad short little man that had little, you know, there's the Napoleonic uh, complex, they call it the Napoleon complex, which is when you talked about oh, this short, angry little guy wants to rule, you know, conquer the world. Yeah. I've actually heard that. I think. Yeah. And the thing is, Napoleon wasn't short. He was five, seven, which is short for our time, but was completely average. If above average for the time period that he was in. So he wasn't a short little man. He was just as tall as everyone else. It's all relevant. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it is, it's relative to or relative. To, yeah, sorry. relative to the era. But uh, my point is, is that five seven for that era was not short at all. We've done a lot taller now. That would be considered kind of short now. But it wasn't during that era. And another big problem with the aspect of everyone thinking he's a conqueror, Napoleon never declared war on one single nation. When he took power in France after the French Revolution, he already had every cis- every other country surrounding him declaring war on them. And the reason being is because the French Revolution got rid of the France monarchy. And the French Revolution was a little bit after the American Revolution, which, as you know, the Americans rebelled against the English monarchy. So when that happened with France... They started viewing it the same way that when we viewed communism being a domino effect, they thought freedom was becoming a domino effect. And Europe, you know, all the European countries that had monarchs demanded that France restore their monarch that they had. And when the French refused because they killed the monarchs and the nobles during the reign of terror, that's where the guillotine comes from. So all those people were um, beheaded for being part of the royal uh, government monarch and all the other countries automatically before Napoleon even took power declared war on France and we're going to march on Paris and 
demand that a monarch was restored. Because a few of uh, uh, the relatives of the monarch fled to Europe. And so they were going to bring him back and have him rule over France again. So Napoleon was already on the defensive as soon as he took power. Now, he did crown himself emperor. But the thing is, they were in a moment of crisis. He had to take executive power if they were going to move fast enough militarily to be able to stop the forces from coming in and invading Paris. Right. And I think that's where I personally misunderstood a little bit. I mean, when I think of Napoleon, I, I immediately thought of a dictator, not an emperor. I mean, I don't really understand the difference, but that's all minutia. The point being here that, you know, I thought he was just like this conqueror that said, I want to take over the world. And I said, you know, I mentioned pre-show how it's kind of like you mentioned he's not evil. And you, know, you said there really is no evil. And I said, well, Hitler's not evil either. But you made the very good point of, no, he went out with an intention to conquer the world. Where Napoleon was just really defending his territory and doing what he had to to hopefully move his people forward. Not, not to mention, Hitler also decided to try to wipe out an entire type of people yeah, based upon their up. religion. So, it's a little more extreme. Napoleon never did that. He never had a holocaust where he killed specific people. As a matter of fact, he tried to keep casualties down in a lot of his engagements. And the way he did that was through military maneuvering. So, a lot of times, his soldiers would say that Napoleon doesn't even win with shooting a shot. He wins by marching. And a lot of that is due to they won't engage you if you move to a certain spot that is not advantageous for them. So you can even prevent battles by just marching your men into a different location. So he very much used uh, passages from Sun Tzu's Art of War, if anyone knows what that is. I've heard of it, but I'm not sure I've ever read it. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in, in a lot of it, it talks about if you don't have to engage your enemies, if you can win without engagement, then... That should always be the path. That engagement should only be when it's absolutely necessary. And that reduces your casualties, reduces the enemy's casualties, and makes for a lot better of a war, as good of a war as you can have. Because war's terrible as it is, so. If it's going to be, I mean, there's not really any good war per se, but if it's going to be on a scale, yeah. then that's the best Might it as well be. have it less <laughs> amount of it as possible. So. When they were all coming in to attack him, he decided to do what he needed to do and uh, claim power as, uh, as the emperor. And by the way, this did look bad because it was done kind of via military coup, but he was the popularist person and everyone did want him. And yes, he did some questionable things, but we also shouldn't judge him by his time period because he didn't do anything worse than any of the other people that were around. Right. It's kind of like you were saying about his height. At the time, he wasn't short. At the time, the things he was doing weren't necessarily that atrocious. No, they weren't terrible. He never did anything terrible. A lot of it was in the name of the greater good of France. And here's a key fact that people seem to forget, which is the most ironic reason why we subscribe to the British propaganda on him. We were allies with him during the War of 1812 when England attacked the U.S. He was our ally. He also sold us the Louisiana Purchase for dirt cheap. He wasn't our enemy. Napoleon was one of our top allies. <laughs> he was one of the reasons that you know we didn't get wrecked in the War of 1812 because they were already at war with him. But that's why we even got attacked because we were allies with him. We were part of the trade embargo that 
uh, Napoleon had. So technically, without Napoleon, America might not exist in its true form that it does today. Is what you're telling me? Yeah. Well, he was he was one of our allies, I and mean, the French were our allies, and he was too. And Napoleon was inspired by our our um that our revolution that we had over here. The Age of Enlightenment, they called it, and the, uh, our philosophical figures like Benjamin Franklin and um, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of them were uh, forward thinkers for that time, had their own philosophies that were considered the Age of Enlightenment. And he was inspired by that. And the French Revolution was inspired by that. And off of our Constitution, Napoleon created what he called the Napoleonic Code, which actually gave rights to women, like they gave rights they gave a lot of people a lot more rights than they did before during under the monarch so so there was a lot of good that came out of it that gets glanced over is what you're telling me there, there was a lot of good that came out of it and some credits will point to well haiti was a french uh slave colony essentially and they fought for their freedom against napoleon but the thing is napoleon didn't have slaves in france they, I mean, they had their slave colony of Haiti, but that was something that was already there, and it was hard for him to just go and ab- abolish that when he was getting attacked by everyone and they needed those resources, because those resources over there would have been just gone if he decided to uh, just let them be free like that. And he didn't even lead the military campaign that rebel, you know, that fought against the rebellion in Haiti when Haiti revolted against France. So uh, that's not something I would really hold him personally responsible for, even though he probably could have done more. Yes, but again, he still was a pretty great person for his time. And if you ever go and look up quotes by him, they're actually extremely inspirational. And he said some really great things that, and that's why I started researching this. I, I was like, I thought he was just the evil short dictator. And then I see his quotes and I'm like, oh my God, this guy is like a philosophical genius. Like, this guy seems like a good guy. Uh, some of the stuff I really liked from him was that he uh, was what you call like a sun worshiper. I mean, he didn't go out and worship the sun, but basically he was kind of an agnostic. Was Napoleon a flat earther? No. <laughs> but he, he, he was... um. He was agnostic, essentially. So he really wasn't Christian or anything. And that's one of the other criticisms, is that when he was being crowned emperor, there's a famous painting of him grabbing the crown from the Pope and crowning himself. And everyone sees it as an egotistical thing. But it was really a statement against the church. Because the church, the reason the church would crown people back then is because the church is like, we're endowing you with this greater power. That's why we're the institution that's crowning you. They're saying that, like, we control everything. We're giving you this power. We're in charge. Exactly. We're handing this down upon you rather than you've earned this. And that's the symbolism. And, and church is all about symbolism. Church loves the pageantry and the symbolism. Right. Because there wouldn't be so many damn religious symbols if it wasn't that way. So during that time, the Pope, you know, was very pageantry. You look at the Pope compared to now. Very more humble. Back then, it was all about the symbols and the pageantry. They dressed up. And that whole statement was Napoleon going, no, I cr- took power for myself. The, the institution of Christ- you know, Catholics and Christians aren't giving me the power. I was going to say, he's not given the power. He, he earned it, or he took it. He did, he did take it, but he did kind of earn it, too, because he did 
bring them out of a really depressing time. So the church almost like discredited him for what he's done. Oh, well, for that portion. And again, his quotes would lead you to believe that he's either atheist or agnostic because he never says anything about God. He only talks about like how the sun, if you if you were to worship anything, it would be the sun because you can see it and it provides us with all the energy we need, which right. is true. It's very true. Without the sun, we're all nothing, basically. And we're all made out of stars. So if you want to call anything a god, I guess that's a good way to start. It's decently logical. So, uh, in closing, what I'll, what I'll say is that one of the last facts about Napoleon is he actually beat Russia during his first campaign when he fought off uh, Austria, Prussia, and England all at once. He fought Eesh. off all those armies. At the Battle of Austerlitz, he was able to kick all of their asses with just <laughs> his army because he was just such a tactical was he strategical? Yeah, genius. Absolutely. One of the top geniuses of all time when it comes to strategy. I mean, the guy was absolutely brilliant, except when it came for not invading Russia during the blizzard. <laughs> but nobody's perfect. Yeah, but he did beat Russia, though, because he beat their army back, and he completely beat them until they capitulated and surrendered to him. Now, here's the interesting thing. The supposed evil conqueror, Napoleon, when he beat the Russian king, let the Russian king stay in power and let them keep all their land and all their people only only under one condition that he didn't trade with England because England didn't surrender. They just ran back to their island like they usually do what they did in World War II, but um, they, they ran back to the island and refused to surrender. But Russia did surrender and he allowed them to keep their land and remain in power. Now this was his, this is where he went wrong. He shouldn't have actually left that king in power because he had the trade embargo of Russia, and Russia wasn't making any money because of the blockade that England had and because of their agreement to do a trade um, embargo with England, that Russia had to declare war on him again. Oh, so he kind of screwed himself so over. And that's when he lost, when he went to go fight them the second time. So Russia was almost kind of forced. Their hand was forced then. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like... Yeah, they had much of a choice. And and the thing is that Napoleon and the King of Russia were actually really good friends. They actually became to they came to really like and befriend each other. Until uh, he had to do it for his nation was falling apart without trade. Until they got invaded. (laughs) Yeah, and well, then 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 Napoleon, well, he declared war on them again. So Napoleon we're not friends anymore. (laughs) Napoleon had to do something. (laughs) So, and then that's when he went and lost because. The Russians didn't give up, and that's when they implemented scorched earth. So, either way, he was nice enough to leave him in charge. So, that's something a conqueror usually never does. That'd be like if Hitler took over England and left Churchill in charge. Yeah, like, he's like, kidding ah, me? actually, you're good. <laughs> are you kidding me? That's not what would have happened. So, uh, bottom line, good guy. Pretty good hot good guy. guy. <laughs> pretty, pretty great guy in history. Would have been someone cool to hang out with. I, I mean, I definitely misunderstood the whole situation and i definitely didn't really know too much about all of this um this history speak from this fun fact to be honest with you i mean i think again we've all heard terms and and names of battles and treaties some of the ones that you've mentioned i've i've heard of all them and maybe years ago in school i learned about some of them but getting a refresher and getting it from your point of view makes 
Uh, it helps me grasp it a lot better and kind of understand what he was and what he did. And now I feel as if going through my life, I'll have that uh, piece of knowledge with me. So yeah, so that, that that'll be this bit of historical figures. Uh, may I'll just make that the same. The last two have been about figures in history. I mean, that's one of your your passions, and I think this is such a cool part about this podcast that we can spend an hour talking about you know, resource-based economy and automation, and then you can give us some actual good history information. I mean, it's dynamic. Well, there'll be a lot more history to come. Hopefully. So, back to closing out where, you know, connecting all the dots yep. of everything that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So, here's where the, um, the, the fractals come into play. So, interesting thing about the 3D printer that I have. I recently learned that when you calibrate in layer height, so that's each layer, the height of each layer of filament that the printer lays, I found something very interesting about it. It's 0.1618. And the interesting thing about that number is that number equates to the Fibonacci sequence, which is also a fractal. Which we spoke about in episode one, I think. Yes, and probably two, but the, the Fibonacci sequence is being used on my layer heights to get me the best print possible. So it, it it's a little odd, or it isn't, I should say it isn't odd after doing this podcast and learning about fractals, that a fractal so happens to be the best optimal layer height for you to print on. Well, essentially from what I've learned in the past three episodes is that fractals are everywhere and essentially they are within everything. I mean, the stucco texture on this wall is essentially a fractal to some degree, is it not? Yeah, it is. The, the more you zoom out, the more the pattern will be repeated, even given its numerous amount of variables that are judging the outcome of it. Exactly. So what this leads me to believe is that we experience fractals in all parts of our life, even when you don't realize it. But when you have that second of realization, um, I keep saying realize, but you realize yeah. what, that it's there in and, everything. And so how fractals happen in tie into our automated processes and processes at home is that fractals are complex patterns. So uh, AI is going to use fractals. They're going to be able to find fractals and they're going to increase in complexity in their pattern. Uh, The more complex the pattern, the more intelligent some of these AIs will get. And another way is that it ties into fractal architecture and the reason is is because resource-based economy, uh, personalized, automated means of production in your own home, all tie in to fractal architecture. As I mentioned before, a lot of my architectural designs include a production room, which houses a giant 3D printer that is able to print out of all types of filament. Now, those printers do not exist yet, but they are being developed, and they'll only get better. And soon you'll have a printer in your room in, in a production room that's able to print you out tablet or whatever goods you need on demand that'll give you enough of possible material than actually owned material so that'll be the amount of material items you can actually have and the amount that you actually have in existence so it's the access to greater amount of material goods and this fits in because these houses using fractals to be able to have the house fit in a complex dynamic system, as I've said in the first episodes. The house is going to be part of a new paradigm shift in our place in 
on this earth and in this universe. And the architecture uses things like 3D printers, which actually use fractal patterns within their layer height. But the 3D printers will be connected to an automated system in your house that judges the amount of material goods and things you consume, so consumables. And that will be a fractal pattern. Because like I said, even your daily habits through time become a fractal pattern. That's why you can see the same type of wear and tear on things after a while in your house, a certain place, if you don't wash the floor, that gets dirty with all your foot and becomes a pattern. And these machines, these production machines, will be hooked up to an advanced system that can check your consumption patterns and be able to recycle resources that you've used and maintain all material matter within your housing unit. Based on habitual observations? Yes, and based upon understanding fractal patterns and bigger patterns that evolve throughout time. So these patterns will be able, they'll be responsible for like food production. So it's something we'll talk about in the next episode, automated food production. I'm glad I didn't ask about it this episode because I was going to. So we'll save that for next time. Food production? Yeah. That that is automated. But like I said, there's going to be a bunch of subsets off of automation. Right. So this time we talked about it broadly. Next time we might talk about food production automation or... Uh, all about just 3D printing. Right. So this time we try to touch base on... So this is like the idea of automation, but we're going to dive deeper into the specifics. Yeah, so like when you brought up that 3D printers are completely printing houses, that's another thing, is that fractal pattern geometry can be fed into a 3D printer, and it can print out a house based upon that. So it'll allow for more adaptive designs and redesigns of the house, because you can readily change material like if you want to tear down a wall and put another wall somewhere else that wall's material can be torn down and then reprinted that's a pretty unbelievable thing that might be able to happen it will be able to happen and that's part of the thing of having a dynamic house that fits in with a complex dynamic system which is where it all ties back to episode one when we talked about complex dynamic systems exactly which is essentially a fractal that occurs in fourth dimensional space Sheesh, I think that might be a good place to end it. <laughs> good place to end. Uh, if you want to listen to or comment, I'm on SoundCloud and iTunes right now. I'm probably going to get Facebook and Instagram going. And I also have an email. So if you have any questions or want to hear more stuff or just want to get a hold of me, you can contact me there. And all that stuff will be in the show notes, so you guys can just scroll down on iTunes here or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening, and we'll have links to all of that for you guys. Yes. Thanks for joining us, and DJ, thank, thank you. you for all of your information, man. I, I really, truly do think that my mindset has been changed from when I entered your room and kind of heard your vision to, to where I'm at now. I think it makes a little bit more sense. Well, that's what I hope to do with this podcast. Great. Thank you for tuning in.